Republicans seek to take control of the House of Representatives. Republicans are going to retake both the House and the Senate. A liberal MSNBC host warning Democrats about the potential for a red wave. Do we have any sort of canary in the coal mine type indications of where we may be headed on that front? Fox News is calling the Virginia governor's race for Republican Glenn Youngkin. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve. Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program. Good Thursday to you, Smug. This How is, we doing? This is going to be a banger of an episode. I'm like really excited about about the interviews we got lined up for this one. So, folks, I mean, you're in for a treat. Yeah, you you're notice for a treat. You notice he said plural yeah, on that. Yeah, uh, and the reason he said plural on that is because we have two big interviews. The first is with Michael Pack and Mark Paoletta. If their names don't immediately ring a bell it's because they're sort of behind the scenes they're the ones that put together the documentary the the definitive documentary on the life and times of clarence thomas who we affectionately call uh chief justice chief justice clarence thomas and and uh a while back i I had like a live viewing of of this documentary which is just it's mind-blowing without exception everyone who i've talked to who i who i said you got to see you got to see it it blows their minds what it's a, incredible. incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. What a hero that guy is. Just rags to riches story. Perfect American story. And Democrats and the media do have never given him his due. Um, it comes at a really good time, yeah. too, right? I mean, this this documentary that's out, they wrote a book also that's follow-on on the documentary that, that provides a little bit more detail. Like they say, 99% is not in the documentary. So it's like really, really good stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway... They talk all about it. You're really going to like it. If you're into anything we've talked about with the court and Justice Thomas lately, you're going to love this interview. Huge. Um, Secondly, we have another really compelling interview. A woman named Jennifer Say. Now, her name may ring a bell for one of two reasons. First off, she was a seven-time American uh, uh, gymnast that was on the Olympic or on on the team like she won the 86 all around I mean this is like an incredibly accomplished gymnast who went on to a career in corporate America and the second reason you'll recognize her name is she's the one who is basically being considered as the CEO she'd all ridden up she was the the like chief of the brand of of marketing of Levi's and had gotten all the way to the top. They were considering her for CEO. COVID happened, and she became very concerned about the sort of groupthink about lockdowns Mm -hmm. and about keeping children out of schools and, like, the harm that that was causing. Mm -hmm. And she's a smart lady, so she went through a whole bunch of the numbers, did her own analysis, and was pretty vocal on Twitter and Facebook and everything else. And it turns out her employer didn't care for that. Right. And so she went on, she went for, and she was kind of like a far left Democrat at one point. I mean, she, she was like an Elizabeth Warren supporter. She lived in San Francisco and this whole process sort of opened her eyes to what corporate America is doing to basically, as we've talked about, enforce the progressive party line Yep, across, across anything that they can control. Yep. And, and, and to touch back on one of those topics that you'd mentioned about like locking down the schools, a couple of days ago there was a Nate Silver tweet where The Economist has this article where they said, new data suggests that the damage from shutting down schools has been worse than almost anyone expected. And Nate Silver retweets this saying, really? 
this was one of the most predictable policy mistakes of all time, <laughs> which the response was, as you would imagine, a bunch of left-wing people who were like, no, it's unbelievable we don't have our children masked to this day. And it was just like an absolute nightmare. But like you're looking at the data now from two years on of what effect this has had on kids. And there were there were a lot of people who were vocal about it. And they suffered, uh, you know, in many cases, they suffered a great cost for being like, hey, Maybe you shouldn't like put kids in solitary confinement. Maybe that's unhealthy. And the most vulnerable populations, by the way. Yeah. Right. The kids that are in underserved communities in public schools are the ones that were like the private school kids all went back. Yep. Right. And that's what she was concerned about. That's what she was talking about. It came to a head at some point and she told Levi's to shove it up their ass. Yeah. They tried to give her a big corporate uh, package to basically silence her Mm -hmm. on her critiques of corporate America because it all started with a COVID critique, right? Yep. Which she's like, yeah, we have different opinions about that, but I like I was pretty serious about it and it turns out I was right. Yep. That set that aside would change my life in my point of view is the idea that you have these corporate American titans mm-hmm. that are actively censoring what you can and cannot say if it happens to be right of center. And, it, and it's become just it's, it's horrific at this point the influence that you know how how in line and lockstep you now have the left the Democrat Party and corporations it's like uh, uh, Bernie at this point his viewpoints are what's being espoused by all the corporations as wild as it may seem as antithetical as antithetical as it may seem these corporations now wield such power to be able to influence what is allowed to be said what is not allowed to be said in the public sphere, and not only for their employees, but in the, on the public, they enforce this. Look, we talked about this on Tuesday, but if you add what you just described to education, to the White House, to everything else, you understand why people are losing trust in institutions in this country. Yeah, exactly. Totally. And it's, you know, you can speculate as to why. Are the le- are the, are the CEOs and the and leadership of all these companies left-wing? Probably more often than not, I mean, they're they're located in big cities, group think, and cocktail parties and everything else, mm-hmm. probably. Mm-hmm. The other part of it is just a bounty, right? You just pay them off. You basically pay lip service to every left-wing thing in the world, and they're going to stop paying attention to your products. Yeah, and you saw a lot of this, especially like during the BLM riots, where like you had banks and stuff who were just like, here, uh, we will send some money to this group who it'll end up getting spent on buying the founders like a, a mansion in California. But they're just like, it, it's like a nuisance fee where they're like, here. It's a uh, protection racket exactly, is what it is. That's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a protection racket. But it, but it becomes endemic to the corporate culture. And that's what really opened up Jennifer's eyes. We talk about a whole range of topics. I was actually totally fascinated in her experience with USA Gymnastics, right? Because she was basically the first person who blew the whistle on maybe not everything is right here. And then obviously that became a larger issue as we dealt with Larry Nasser and the sexual abuse and, and all of that that was happening there. Now that's been exposed, that guy's gone to jail. But she's been a part of every one of those pieces. Like mm-hmm. she blew the whistle with her first book. She helped put out Athlete A, which is a incredible film that you should see under the right circumstances because it's incredibly depressing and it talks about all the the sexual abuse and everything that was going on. But she's been a part of all of that and then now she found herself as a left-leaning American amidst a corporate culture that was trying to erase her, basically. It's incredible. And she, of course, with that background, spoke out. Look, she, she is a real hero 
and there is nothing more American than speaking out against something that's wrong on behalf of what you know is right. That's right. And that's increasingly more difficult in today's culture, especially when you have the sort of stature in corporate America that she had. She had a lot to risk, and she didn't care. She knew what was right, and she stuck to her guns. No question about it. So you're going to learn something here today from both of these interviews. Let's get to the first one, uh, Michael Pack and Mark Paoletta. I want to welcome to the program two gentlemen who are involved in an incredibly important project. One you've probably seen before if you're a listener of the Variety program with any frequency because we've talked about it on several occasions. But they've also got a book out now that encompasses even more. And what I'm talking about is uh, the life and times of Clarence Thomas. It's called Created Equal. I want to welcome Mark Paoletta and Michael Pack. So thank you. Thank you for having us on. Josh, thanks for having us on. Of course. Listen, first off, I saw the documentary when it first came out. The film was incredible. Um, it, it, it Clearly, there's nothing like it anywhere out there about any conservative, really, but certainly not one with the kind of stature of Clarence Thomas. That is really true. Um, I like to say, though, that it's a great American story, period. And the people, whatever their politics, should watch it. You know, the, the film... Originally was in movie theaters until the pandemic shut the movie theaters down. Then it was nationally broadcast on PBS. And now it's, and it's been streaming ever since. Your, your listeners can get it on Amazon or, or go to our website, manifoldproductions.com and find out the, the 10 or 12 other places it's streaming. But we were happy it was on PBS because we think people who may not agree with Clarence Thomas need to understand him and hear his story. And that his story coming from dire poverty in the segregated South to the highest court in land is a great inspirational story for everybody. And if his politics were different, everyone would recognize that. But, but I think at this moment, really, where the country is divided, it's particularly important for people on the other side to try to understand Clarence Thomas. And maybe it would mitigate the viciousness of their attacks to some extent. So I, I ask your listeners to watch the film with a friend or send the book to a child or grandchildren who might be drifting in another direction <laughs> and see the other side. I mean, it's, I, I think we had lots of responses from liberals who love the film and now love the book. So well, that's not, an excellent, uh, excellent point. It is not supposed to be ideological. Of course, everything in our society today is, seems to be viewed through that lens. You gentlemen come at this from two different uh, sides of the coin. Michael, obviously, we just heard from is the documentary filmmaker. Mark, you actually worked on the Clarence Thomas confirmation during the H.W. Bush administration. Yeah, I was a young lawyer and um, I had met Clarence Thomas actually before 1983 when I was a senior in college. But I was the first person sort of officially to reach out to, to Clarence Thomas when uh, President Bush was considering appointing him to the D.C. Circuit. Uh, so in March of 89, um, I connected up with Clarence Thomas and asked him to send me all of his speeches and articles and all that sort of stuff that we could vet him. Right. This is before the days of the Internet. Right. And all that. So. I had a long conversation with him about an hour when I first called him um, and, and really connected with him. And we've been friends ever since I worked on his D.C. confirmation and then, you know, really worked on his Supreme Court confirmation and, you know, went through that hell with him. I mean, that must have been an unbelievable experience as a young lawyer. It was uh, it is uh, is informed the rest of my life, <laughs> you know, every day uh, on so many levels and seeing someone like that uh, who's a hero and a friend go through that and how he handled it and to never give up 
right? You never back down. And, um, and to see what the kind of the left was doing. Um, and right after he was confirmed um, in October of 91, a few months later, I was diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, we'd gone through this terrible ordeal. And, you know, he's beaten up and going on the Supreme Court. And yet every day, uh, either he came over to my house or called me uh, to make sure I was doing fine when I was going through my chemotherapy. And at the end of that process, which is, you know, a, a year or so, he wrote, a, uh, there's a photo when my hair had grown back um, and it was curly uh, when it came back at first. Uh, and he wrote, great hair, buddy. Uh, we survived. Uh. Uh, and it's, it's hanging on my wall over here, but it's, uh, it's just Clarence Thomas through and through, right? Um, he went through a, a difficult time, but he turned right around and was there for a friend. Uh, and that's how he is with me. That's how he is with so many people. And just going on, once you went on that court, it's tough to defend yourself from all these attacks, right? People think, oh, you're a Supreme Court justice. You have an army of whatever PR advisors. You don't. You don't. You know, it's just you and you're doing your job and it's not, you're not going to get in the mud, right? Mm -hmm. And Justice Thomas in particular is not interested in def defending his reputation, right? He's going to do what he's going to do, come what may, as I say. And that's why as kind of the years went along and these attacks continued, right? The, the tipping point for me was that movie confirmation that came out in 2016, which was on HBO, which was probably like the third or fourth attack job, smear job on Clarence Thomas. Yes. Inventing new facts always. Like, oh, I remember that guy. That was just absolutely atrocious. Yeah, it was Kerry Washington. That is the movie, Josh, that kind of made me go, whatever. <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> we're going we to present the other side here. And I, and I set up two websites, but I connected up. I wanted to make a film and I connected up with Michael Pack or have somebody make a film. And Michael Pack, who's our, our best documentary filmmaker, who had made films on uh, George Washington, on Alexander Hamilton, yes. uh, on the Rodney King um, uh, incident um, in California. And he was interested in making this film on, on Clarence Thomas. Um, and so it, it, it shows it's, it's the extent where there's a silver lining of another smear job. It was the idea of Justice Thomas's friends uh, wanting to have a movie that helped tell his life in a fair way. Because as Michael said, it is the greatest American story. Totally. And I don't think there's any justice. And I, I dare say any president that has come from a farther sort of, you know, down, uh, 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 you know, in terms of the, the, the depths of where they were born, right, mm -hmm. to a, a place on the Supreme Court. And I'm talking any justice almost back to our founding. Yeah, I mean, look, it's just the socioeconomic rise of, of Clarence Thomas alone would be an incredible story. Right. But you also captured the human, the man and processing both the confirmation, his thought process, his humility. The film was absolutely terrific. I'm, I'm going to get the book and read the book because I'm told there's 90 percent more information in that as well absolutely it's not at least 95 percent new material <laughs> lots of stories that we couldn't get into the film uh and it's based as you may you know you have seen the film you know i interviewed justice thomas and jenny they're the only interviews in the film for over 30 hours over several months and it's only a two-hour films and it's got other stuff recreations oh. archival footage so there's a lot of material that didn't get in the film and that is in the book um, and it follows the same pattern as the film. It tells his life story from the beginning to the end, but it's divided up so you can go to the sections that you want. So it, it serves a different purpose. I think you could, they complement each other. You could read and see both. Um, 
And, and, and you're right about the human story. I mean, his story is a great story. I mean, as Mark says, he came from real poverty in the segregated South. And there are other twists and turns. You know, he was, after being in, living in high, horrible urban squalor, his mother brings him to his grandfather and these to raise, and grandfather sends him to parochial school where these, uh, that, then all black, right? The segregated South uh, run by these Irish nuns. And the values he got from his grandfather and his nuns changed his life. It's but not right, o- but, and he wanted to be a priest only to lose his vocation get kicked out of the house by his grandfather and then become an angry black man and be a radical in his college years, you know, and inviting Panthers to his college, Holy Cross to speak, supporting, as he says, the more radical, the better, Angela Davis, Huey Newton. And then to come back, to come back to his core values and understand them more deeply, you know, through law school and beyond. I mean, it's a great story and it shows you the story, his life story, this is what's great for a filmmaker. This is not true for everybody. His life story makes clear where his ideas and principles come from in a dramatic way. So if you see them, you understand them. You know, you, you hear him tell his story. I mean, I want him to tell it in his own words because he's a great storyteller and you get his perspective. You can reject it if you don't like him or not. This is, we don't pretend it to be the objective truth. We pretend it to be Clarence Thomas's view of his life. But when you hear it, you understand them. And maybe that's why I think maybe the anger on the left, this might be utopian on my part, would subside <laughs> if more of them saw the film. He, and he's not going to be shaken, as Mark says. You can see when you've gone through all that and all those attacks, which actually started even before the confirmation hearing, as soon as he became a public figure, a a, a Black conservative working for Ronald Reagan. The attacks started in, in the oh, yeah. early 80s and haven't ceased. So he's used to it. What are more attacks going to do to Clarence Thomas? You know, he's, <laughs> he's been there before. Um, so I think it's 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 important to get insight into into this person. He is he is not just the most imp- one of the two or three most important black men in America, but he is now one of the most important men in America, or men or women in America. And people should understand him. And, and people on the left, frankly, as you said don't really understand anybody on the right, right. you know they, they you know so it's well to understand one maybe you know this one this one is particularly important right i mean we affectionately yes. call him chief justice thomas here in the variety program because <laughs> of his impact on the court but your timing fellas just couldn't be better we've <laughs> probably seen the most impactful court term that we've seen in generations in generations. And of course, that Clarence Thomas core is just a huge, huge part of that. Mark, I wonder, as you, as you put this project together, of course, you finish it, you finish the documentary, you finish the book, you're, you're ready to go. And then all of a sudden, these court decisions come out. Is it did you know, is you do you know that this is going to happen? Are you confident that Clarence Thomas is point of view is going to eventually shine through in this court as the way it has this term or is this just you know just a larger project to tell the story of clarence thomas yeah you know we went to the publisher in early 21 uh and they're they're the ones who picked their it's regnery they're great so they probably picked it towards the end of the term uh and um we were working hard to, to, it was a lot more work than I thought. So working hard to get it done and keep that schedule. So I think the idea of of a book coming out on Justice Thomas at the end of a Supreme Court term is going to be the most timely time to do it. Um, 
you know, all of these opinions, Josh, you know, the, the big ones and in in, in, in even throughout the term, they're all aligning with where Justice Thomas has been for 30 years, right? Exactly. So all of this is a culminate, even if he wasn't writing the opinion, right? At the EPA opinion, uh, uh, right? On reigning in e EPA in the administrative state is all based, in my view, on all of Justice Thomas's opinions that he's been laying down for 30 years, either, you know, dissent or concurrences. And he's made this body of work. You know, he writes more opinions per year than any Supreme Court justice by far, mm -hmm. right? He writes like 30 opinions per year, up sometimes up in the high 30s. And Justice Kagan writes 10 a year. Now, there's nothing against Justice Kagan, right? It's just that Clarence Thomas has made it a project. He is going to go through the Constitution. He's going to take every single issue that's coming up through the court, and he's going to shake it. And he's going to leave his it. mark on each and every one. Each and every one. And it, what's fun about the book, right? I, I'll just jump back to the book for a little bit it, and, and make the movie. But this comes up in the book more because we obviously have more space. As he talks about, you know, that fiercely independent thinking of anyone trying to tell Clarence Thomas how to think or what to do. You see this immediate like reaction <laughs> and him going through his life, trying to figure out, you know, where he is on things and the influence in, in the books right? From Ayn Rand and the Fountainhead, right? Native Son and Richard Wright, The Invisible Man. He talks a lot about these books uh, in, the, in, the, in, in our book, in the interview. Um, and when he talks about starry decisis, he con connects it up with being told in Holy Cross that somehow, you know, every Black student should like love to listen to Hugh Masekela. <laughs> now, I didn't know who, who Hugh Masekela was when he, he mentioned this. So I went back and looked. He was like this big jazz musician, right? And he's like, I don't have anything against Hugh Masekela, but I didn't want to listen to Hugh Masekela. This is my brand of music. And for, for them to tell me I have to made me want to listen to something else. So then he says, you know, that's like notions of starry decisis. It's been decided, like move along, stop thinking. And it's so offensive to him. But you can see that as a justice, right? When when this whole thing of Roe v. Wade is settled law and you can't touch it. And Justice Thomas is thinking, what was I, you know, I'm on this court to think. I've been thinking my entire, you know, life, uh, my views, I'm going to get to those answers and I'm going to dig down into that constitution and say, what does it mean? I don't care or I'm interested in what other people, but that's not going to define me. It's not going to tell me to stop thinking. So that's why the book is fun or interesting is because you're getting inside the mind of Justice Thomas, even as his own life and how he, you know, went through it and processed it informs his, his jurisprudence, right? Mm -hmm. That fierceness of don't tell me how to think. Yeah. Um, and of course, the left has been after him for his entire career because they think that people should have certain views based on the color of their skin, right? It's the most racist thing in the world, and they will destroy you if you don't. Uh, and that's just made just, to, he knows that. He says that in the movie. He says it even more in the book. Um, but it just shows you how he approaches those issues. You, you well, Listen, you guys captured it in the most amazing way that I think anybody who has never, as, as Michael, as you said, anybody who's never had any sort of uh, understanding of Clarence Thomas needs to see, because you'll have a very, very different point of view, including a great sense of humor. I might add, mm. you guys have captured all of it. The book is created equal Clarence Thomas in his own words, the, the documentary also a must see situation fellas, Michael Pack. Mark Paoletta, I can't thank you enough for doing the project and thank you for coming on and telling our listeners about it. Thank Thanks you for Josh. having us on. Thanks. 
once again, you are just reminded at what an incredible American that Clarence Thomas actually is. Yeah, uh, one one thing I always try to point out to people to just let them appreciate the gravity of what he's accomplished is you see it in the documentary when he was a child and had to move uh, to a separate house, he was told put all your belongings in one brown paper bag, everything he owned in the world. Amazing. One little brown paper bag, and the man is now a Supreme Court justice. Just incredible. An incredible life. And those guys, I mean, they come at it from two different situations, right? Mark is, is somebody who has known him, worked on his confirmation in, in, in the Bush administration, first Bush administration. Um, and then obviously you've got the filmmaking component to it, too. They come at it from do, two different areas. But I think the big takeaway from both of them is if you were to listen to the mainstream media, you wouldn't know the story. Nobody would tell the story. No. Right. This is a story that you actually uniquely have to get through other means, which is it's a sad commentary on the state of our of our information flow. It is. I mean, it's a sad commentary on corporate media. And it's it's just the unfortunate reality that we're living in. The true American heroes are not celebrated on the front pages of every newspaper in the country. I mean, the the irony of the fact that Joe Biden, who tried to sink Clarence Thomas's confirmation. Yep. The irony that he is president of the United States and Clarence Thomas is actually the one who's in charge. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't want to give lost. any spoilers because everyone really, you should see the documentary. But like there was a hilarious moment where they asked uh, Justice Thomas about that exchange during the confirmation oh, yeah. of Joe Biden. And just, I mean, he just destroys Joe Biden. It's, it's a so wonderful good. documentary. It's so good. You got to see it. Anyway, that was terrific. Should we do a little animal news? Always. Always. Um, so we've talked a lot about you know the lifeguards getting paid 500k Which in is Florida. Um, amazing. Um, but it seems like Hank and his gang have other ideas, and they've mobilized what appears to be sea lions at a bo- at a beach in La Jolla uh, around San Diego. Have you seen the video of this situation? It's hilarious. I have not. Could you describe that? So these sea lions come up out of the water and they're just attacking people on the beach running they're just running them down you just see like a crowd running from two sea lions who are like i didn't know these things could move this fast they're like hoping it but without hopes i mean they're just like flying down the beach and they're and doing that just, flop thing you know they flop yeah, around a little they bit like throw themselves forward and you're just seeing people just book as fast as they can. So, but according to this uh, this guy, Malik Ernest, a group of people were chased by two sea lions at the beach, as we just said. Lifeguards were on standby in the water, ensuring that no one was hurt uh, and the sea lions could easily make their way. It's recommended that people stay at least 15 feet away from the sea lions. Wait, 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 wait. The sea lions could easily make their way. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right. These are people trying to enjoy the beach. Oh, yeah. And they're supposed to be protected by uh, lifeguards making half a million dollars a year. And the lifeguards are concerned about letting the sea lions find their way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They yeah, can't. Yeah. They can't get a spear gun. <laughs> no. That's what I'm saying. Is like the video of it when you see it is insane because like the lifeguards are basically trying to like put out a red carpet for the sea lions to be like attacking the sun do what you want yeah meanwhile i mean they were the, the sea lions were going ham like here i'll pull the video right up is it is i it, mean they're going the sea lions are like rampaging right and and you see lifeguards and they're just like okay sea lions uh <laughs> if you want to go in the water you gotta be, be kidding me yeah this that's is, so these these things are actually waddling on the beach toward people <laughs> yeah oh yeah they're this trying to take not, people out this is not like that's the, the beach is our land that's what i'm saying is yeah. they should have been spear gunned well, I mean, do we stop clubbing? 
When do we stop right? clubbing? The, you know seals respect the club. They, you bring out the they club. They have forgotten. They have forgotten. Somehow Man these... with club trumps seals. <laughs> Somehow I, the club has lost meaning to the sea lions in Southern California. I think if you put one on a spike, it sends a message. You just let it sit there. You let it rot in the sun. And it the other sea lions know. They know. You got to send a message. You got to send a message, and Hank only respects that kind of thing. <laughs> well, I think that's the risk because if Hank sees you put a sea lion on a pike, he's going to put a lifeguard on a pike. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Is it, it just struck me of like these people are paid half a million dollars. I mean, if I'm at that beach and the lifeguard is doing nothing to stop a crazy animal from coming after me, that's, that's why they're there, right? Yeah. I mean, whose life are you guarding? Whose exactly. life are you guarding? <laughs> Great point. I mean, maybe we should just arm the monkeys and have them stay <laughs> on the beach. Yeah. Like mercenaries? Yeah. Like we turn them on Hank? Turn them on each other. <laughs> yeah. That's the only way to handle this. That or just pass out some clubs. I don't know. It's a real dilemma. Monkeys uh, can operate a club. Yeah. Well, there's no question. I mean, if they can operate a machete. They can operate we, a club. Yeah, as we talked about. All right, so um, listen, let's get to Jennifer Say. This is a great interview. We really learned a lot. I want to welcome to the program a very interesting woman, someone we've really wanted to have on the program for a long time. You've probably heard her quite a bit in the news over the last few months, but her career from beginning to end is incredible. She was a seven-time member of the U.S. Women's National Gymnastics Team, 1986 U.S. Women's All-Around National Champion, She's an author. She's a successful exec, all kinds of stuff. Jennifer Say, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Well, you bet. I mean, in addition to all of the amazing things in your resume, I think what is most important is we've sort of reviewed a whole bunch of things, getting ready for this interview and, and thinking about everything that you've been up to. Is there somebody who's always spoken out when it mattered most? It didn't matter what it was, your gymnast career, your executive career, you've always had this sort of driving ambition to sort of be you, tell the truth. And and I'm wondering, look, let's start at the beginning. You get into gymnastics, nobody competes at the level that you were at unless you're just incredibly driven. That is true. Yes. My dad tells these tales never saw anything like it in like a five-year-old <laughs> i think i was probably a difficult child to parent uh, <laughs> i feel for my parents i i have four children and you know they're all kinds of different and all kinds of amazing but you know they all have a different and unique way of being challenging also right um and it's usually the flip side of all of their strengths if that makes sense and it so does. you want to find a way to sort of encourage it you know um, but yeah, I was a really driven kid. I think the you know the one thing I would say is gymnastics is this sport that requires total obedience. I mean, the culture is just one of silence, obedience, do as I say, not as I do, don't talk back. And because it's a subjective sport, there's judging, as you know, it's not who crosses the finish line. And before you're even judged on the floor, you're picked for the team and there's subjectivity in that. And so that serves to reinforce this, stay quiet, be good, we don't want to hear from you. Because if you're a troublemaker, you don't get picked. Oh, it's interesting. It's also a sport, it's also a sport where you're competing at the highest levels at such a young age. Yeah, so that is what allows for that kind of 
drilling in of obedience, you know, um, I don't think it would work on grownups quite as well, you know, because at a certain point, if you're a 25 year old, while you may have been schooled in it, you're going to go, mm, no, thank you. I'm not doing that anymore. And, you know, we, we've seen that with Simone Biles, right? She's an adult now. And she said, I'm not putting my life in danger. Um, a 12 year old less equipped to kind of have that uh, kind of wherewithal, you know, I think especially, and this may be not you know, politically correct to say, not that you care, but I think little girls in particular are subject to this. Um, and the coaching methodology is methodology is pretty cruel for both men's and women's gymnastics, but I think it's even worse in women's. And I think it's because they can get away with it. So I, I say all of this as background just to say, I don't come by it naturally, mm -hmm. or, you know, I may come by it honestly, because, you know, speaking up is, I would say a direct response to having been silenced for so long and seeing the harms that can come from that, not just to me, but to the other young girls and women in my community. Um, you support a lie when you do that. And the lie in the case of gymnastics is that it's this like happy, fun, shiny, sparkly, oh, look at these little girls dancing around. And really, you know, many, if not most, are on starvation diets, training on very serious injuries. And you know what? There's a way to do it that isn't that. I mean, mm -hmm. the fact is these children, as you as you indicate, are incredibly driven and motivated. Um, the, the way that, you know, the accepted coaching methodology, I believe, drives more kids from the sport, very talented kids, um, than, than we keep because it's just the, the kids are just collateral damage. If you can't hack it, if you can't stand being bullied, starved, fat, shamed, or training on a broken ankle, well, there's someone else in line right behind you. Mm. But think how many amazingly talented athletes you lose that way. And I know so many of them, and I would even put myself in that category because why, while I was a seven-time national team member and the 86th national champion, I walked away and disgrace in 1988, which was completely unnecessary if I had been treated with a touch more care. So um, I, I've had to work hard to overcome that obedience instilled in no, me. That's so fascinating. That. It's it's just, I'm, I'm glad that you elaborated on that because I always, I sort of thought you've probably built to those moments, right? Because of your career and what you'd been a part of. Give me a little bit of the end of your career. 86 national champion, Obviously, you go into 88, high hopes. You decide ultimately to be done with gymnastics altogether. I'm guessing it's for all the reasons that you just articulated. Yeah, decide would be a generous way to put it. I mean, I was just completely unraveling. I um, won the 1986 national championships on a broken ankle, hmm. a severely shattered ankle, which I didn't even learn until I was in my 40s. Uh, I had trained on this severely injured, you know, purple, the size of a grapefruit ankle for over two years. That kind of pain wears on your psyche, as you might imagine. Um, so the, the physical injuries really got to me. And that ankle injury was on the heels of a broken femur at the world championships. So it was just injury upon injury and I had an eating disorder and, 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 and my brain was just like unraveling. I can't really explain it any better than that, but there were such high expectations of me, you know, 
that I put on myself, but my coaches. And at that point, my parents and, you know, my parents are lovely, supportive, very sane people, but you get caught up in this world and you can't imagine, like I gave up so much for my child. They can't walk away. She'll regret it. They think they're doing it for you and they can't even see the harm that has been done to their child. Mm. Um, and two years in a gymnast life, it may sound short to us as grown-ups, but you know that was like fifteen percent of my life already. Yeah. Like it was unimaginable to continue training for two years when I was just unraveling. I mean, I was just deeply depressed and anxious, and you know, it it was bad. Yeah. <laughs> it was just- it was bad. I wanted to like pull my car across the median and not have to go to practice. Um, and so right before the Olympic trials in 1988, I said, I am done. I, you know, I'll be honest. I wouldn't have made it. I was a mess. I was a wreck. I wouldn't have made the Olympics. I'm not here to pretend like I would have. I had lost all ability to do the sport. Mm. Um, you know, the twisties, which Simone Biles talked about at the Olympics, that's real. Mm. You just things you've been doing since you were eight years old, you don't understand up from down, like no ability to understand where your body is in space. It's really dangerous as you might imagine, which is why I have so much empathy for her. I know not everybody does, but it's a very scary thing. Um, yeah, I imagine was, being 15 feet in the air and not knowing if you're going to land on your, your feet or your head is, is not a great thing. Not a great thing. <laughs> and a lot of times it does not go your way. Right. And I think the thing people forget about gymnastics is how dangerous it is. Right. So it's not like if you are unraveling and not doing well, that your time is just slow and you finish in fourth instead of first. You you land on your head. You break your neck. You break your femur. Um, we all knew young women who were paralyzed or died from the sport. It's and so you can't, you have to take those moments very seriously. Yeah. You know, self-protection has to kick in at, at some point. And that is why, I don't mean to harp on Simone, her teammates supported her because they know that if she says she doesn't know up from down, that it's dangerous and she can't do it. And it's a matter of serious injury, life, death, not an Olympic medal. And so, I, you know, that's kind of where I was. And I, in addition to a bunch of other stuff and my body was broken and falling apart. So I, I did walk away. Um, and the sad part of all of it is I walked away just completely ashamed. Like I felt like I had not accomplished anything. I felt, hmm. and, and I had accomplished so much, you know, I should have been proud. And it took me many years to feel proud of what I had been able to accomplish. Um, which is sad. That's yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. But but you also have this whole other facet of your life, right? I mean, you get into corporate America, you become a successful uh, executive. You know, you're right chalked up. And and that's kind of, it seemed to me like you revisiting that moment, right? And bringing out for the, the world to sort of understand what you had been through and how it sort of shaped your life and what the gymnastics community is, is all about for good and bad and otherwise. Yeah, I wrote Chalked Up. It came out in 2008. I actually wrote it in 2006. So, you know, it was close to, what is that, 20 years after I left the sport um, because it haunted me. It hadn't left me. You know, when you endure that kind of abuse, and there really is no other word for it, just humiliation and bullying every day. I mean, our weight was announced on the loudspeaker. Um, you were shamed for gaining a quarter of a pound. And, you, you know, I don't coach fat gymnasts. You do, you know, I could go on. Um, 
you're a lazy piece of garbage when you are saying my ankle hurts, which is broken. So you keep going. And this is all the stuff outside of the rampant sexual abuse, which has been exposed because of Larry Nassar. So, um, you know, that stuff sticks with you. It affects your the way you view yourself, it affects your self-esteem. Um, and mostly, you know, what I took with me from gymnastics is deploying this strategy of like, I'll just keep my head down and work hard and not make trouble and do what people tell me and I, I'll be good. Like it worked, right? Like I might've been miserable, but it worked. And so I kind of did that throughout my twenties and thirties. And I thought anything um, bad that happened, it was my fault. If, uh, you know, if uh, something at work happened, it was my fault. If something happened in a relationship, I just, it was always my fault, which is pretty typical. It's a typical orientation for a child that has suffered abuse. You know, a mother who hits her child or father will say, I wouldn't have to hit you if it, if you weren't so bad. Right. And so think about how you internalize that. It's a very disorienting way to be in the world. And I spent a lot of time in my thirties coming to understand that. Uh, through therapy, which I highly recommend. (laughs) Um, And then I I wrote it down, which helped, you know, it really helped me sort through it because here I was this grown woman with two kids and a successful job. I think I was a vice president uh, of marketing at Levi's already. And I just was riddled with anxiety and anxiety dreams and, you know, periodic depression. Um, And I just, kind of felt like garbage, you know, all the time. I didn't think very highly of myself and I should have, you know, I was a nice yeah. person. I mean, already what you had accomplished. I mean, anybody else would have just walked away and been like, well, just check out my medals, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you, but you, but you had struggled with this. Yeah, writing it down really helped, you know? I mean, it's why they tell you to do things like journaling, which I don't really do. My journaling was writing a book. Um, and I just forced myself as I wrote it to be as honest as I could be about what happened, but also because there, I write stuff that makes me look bad. Like that's fine. You know, it's okay. You got to reveal the ugly stuff. The truth, the truth, right? I mean, that's, that was the the guiding light on that. That's right. And I, I have to say, I mean, I, it was 2008. So I was not wise in the way I am now to the ways of social media. I don't think any of us were in 2008. And I also brought to writing the book, like I thought this was sort of an open secret that this is the way the training culture was. Oh, you didn't know you were announcing news to the world. I kind of didn't, which Hmm. is really stupid of me and kind of naive. I mean, I, I knew the external world didn't know it, but I knew that we all knew it internally. So I didn't quite, I make my, I'm making myself sound really naive, but I didn't quite expect the backlash, which was pretty brutal um, that I got and the dragging on the internet, but it was good training <laughs> for the, what would happen. For what's to come. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just like people chase you around the internet. They would call into radio shows to threaten legal action. And I was a liar and a grifter, like, a grifter. I mean, you don't make money writing a book as an unknown memoirist. Believe me, this was a pretty shitty grift. If that's what I, <laughs> <laughs> that was my grift. You got to go through a lot to get through that grift. <laughs> I mean, it's a hard slog. Yeah. So, you know, I had to 
toughen up. You know, I really had to kind of toughen up. I did not expect it. Um, it was pretty tough, but it's interesting because the more they came at me, the more assertive I got about mm-hmm. the message. Cause I was like, okay, this scares them. Mm-hmm. There's I hit a nerve, you know, and in the beginning I would say, I'm not, this is an indictment of the sport. This is my story. There's great coaches. And then after a year or two, I was like, no, this sport is toxic. This is an indictment of the sport. It all needs to change. And they still hated me and that was fine. And then the Larry Nasser story broke. Um, right. And for those who don't know, he was the USA team gymnastics doctor for 30 years and he sexually assaulted over 500 young athletes and he's now in jail for life. So when that broke and it wasn't just about him, but this whole culture and, you know, I have to say, you know, when the first few women came forward, well, they weren't the first, the first known women that broke the story versus right. the ones that had repeatedly reported him over 30 years, they were dragged and called liars. They were called sluts. They were called anything to dismiss them. And I was like, oh, this is familiar to me. I I, so is that, and that's why you decided to get involved with Athlete A, right? Is because you felt like these people are going to be tried, they're going to try to dismiss them the same way that they had you. Yes, and I already was sort of I was involved in the in the case to a large extent already because many of the young women who came forward had read my book and had contacted me personally. Oh, interesting. Okay. It just for courage, you know, yeah. and uh, I in fact had spoken and worked somewhat with the uh, civil attorney or one of the main civil attorneys. Like when he had one client, he called me and he said, what is the deal with gymnastics? (laughs) Because he had worked to defend victims of the Catholic church. He didn't know anything about this. Mm -hmm. And I had also been a source for various journalists. And so, because, you know, I was one of only two people at this point that had spoken out from a first person account, not a journalist. It was me and Dominique Mosiano, the, yep. the 1996 Olympic gold medalist. So, you know, I was in the mix and in the ether. So I, uh, the reason I decided to make athlete A was I already knew the players, they trusted me. And I felt like I can tell this story better than anyone else. Mm. No, I've never made a film, but I'll find the right people to help me do it. Well, you certainly did that. An incredibly gut-wrenching, powerful uh, film that if you haven't seen it, you should definitely go see it. it you know, you got to be in the right frame of mind, though, because the story is a terrible story. And it's unfortunately, it's reality for a lot of the people that, that you were in the gym with that, for the last 30 some odd years. Yeah, it's hard to watch. I tell people like, you know, have a cocktail or just prepare yourself. Um, But I also think despite the sort of cruelty and and brutality, it ends with hope because these women are making a difference. Um, And not just the survivors that came forward, but uh, the attorney that prosecuted him and the detective. I mean, that detective is amazing, (laughs) Um, you know. So it's also inspiring when people do the right thing and they find their courage. And I think the other piece that's really inspiring is that courage begets courage. So if one person stands up and is willing to fight the mob or the narrative, whatever it is, and speak the truth, chances are there's others that will join you. But somebody does have to go first and it can really suck to go first, but you will find your people um, and you won't stand alone forever. Well, it's just absolutely true 
holistically, particularly in your life? Because probably unbeknownst to any of you as you're working on any all this stuff, uh, you're an executive at Levi's. They want you to be the CEO of the joint. They love you. You'd been there how long? 20 some odd years? Close to 23 years. Yeah, t- 23 years. And like you said, you have four children. You, like all of us, are watching the world sort of in in you know amusement and I don't mean that and you're like interested but I mean what's happening to us during COVID is so unpredictable and there were so many questions that all of us parents had at the time you start voicing some of these frustrations over the internet right and sort of unbeknownst to you your employer takes exception with some of that all of it yeah (laughs) yeah Um, all of it I should say yeah Interestingly, I mean, I was just sort of skimming kind of old social media yesterday. Um, and I mean, I, fa- I, I, I was speaking out from literally the beginning. I mean, I yeah. found stuff from early March. Um, and it was specifically as it pertains to children and school closures. But I was somewhat vocal in the beginning. I did shift to almost exclusively children, but just about, about lockdowns in general being right. incredibly destructive. Um, you can't shut down global supply chain and think that isn't going to have long-term repercussions in the world, which is exactly what we're seeing. You can't shut down healthcare and deny people chemo and, you know, AA meetings and think there aren't going to be long-term repercussions of that. And I, I was saying all of this, and I knew real, actual people that were suffering from this, right. you know. But it didn't take a lot of imagination to like that. That's what I didn't get from the beginning. It's like. It's not that hard to imagine that a child stuck at home in a one or two bedroom or one or two room apartment when his parents, a single mom maybe is going to work at an hourly wage job and he's home alone and he's six or seven doing online school. Like, right. It's not hard to fathom that that's a disaster. Right. What's so what's so amazing about your story, though? So, so you're raising the same concerns that all of us are. You obviously have a huge platform at this point and that you're an executive they want you to be ceo of of levi's um you know you, you've been a national champion from a gymnast point of view and you're involved in all these incredible projects and so this platform's allowing you to ask the questions that all of us are but at your corporate sort of folks are operating my, sort of in the same way that you found in the gymnast community right it's like well that's not the narrative uh jennifer (laughs) what are you doing um that's right and i you know i think it's of note i didn't really have a following i mean i have like a thousand twitter followers or something and my friends on facebook even though all these things and you know i i really didn't i i now have a you know medium-sized twitter following it's all from this covid stuff in schools really that's really what it's from so that was part of it is I'm like, nobody's hearing me anyway. Who's listening to me? I'm a big nobody. It doesn't matter. And, you know, at the time I was the chief marketing officer at Levi's, which is a big job. And I, I was very public facing and I had won lots of awards. Um, but I just thought of myself as a regular person. I was a public school mom with four kids, all public school educated. Well, one was too young to be in school. I, I I can't really describe it. I guess I'll go back to what I was saying about the book. Like I was sort of naive. It was like, I thought it was, it was an open secret. I didn't know it was a secret secret. Well, 
it was kind of the same for me with COVID. I was like, well, it's so obvious. I'm reading all the data. I'm reading medical studies. I'm reading stat news. Like who reads stat news? <laughs> um, and it's so clear if you read the numbers. I mean, I'm not a numerate. I'm not a math genius, but I understand numbers and data. It's so obvious to me that kids are not at risk. Um, and then as early as April and May, the European schools started to open because they said the harms to children is just, too, they're too great. So I I felt a little like an insane person because yeah, I said, right. it's here, it's all here. Why aren't you just looking at this? And that, and so I, I don't know, I, I can't really describe it, but I just didn't think about what they thought of it. I can't, I mean, I, I got into arguments on Facebook with family very early. Right. So I moved off of that because I was like, I don't want to fight with my family. <laughs> I'll go to Twitter where everything's civil, not really. <laughs> but at least my family wasn't there. Right. And I, I did find other like-minded folks. And the thing that I do really like about Twitter, and, you know, everyone says it's a hellhole and it kind of is, but you can talk directly with experts. Okay. Like I could ask doctors help me. I, and I did. I mean, I was obsessed. You know, I would say, I just read your study. Can you answer my question on this? And they would do it. Mm. So that part of it to me was really helpful and interesting. Um, and nobody was saying anything at work at first. It wasn't really until May until somebody did. So I just kept thinking, okay, I guess they're not looking. They're not on Twitter. I'm fine. <laughs> so so did you, did you, when you were encountering the, the first of the workplace concerns, was that before or after you did the Laura Ingram show? Because it seemed like once you did Fox, there was well, a different tone. Shit really hit. The yeah, <laughs> right. Um, Which no. has got to be an odd place. I just pause you before you say. Got to be an odd place for you because uh, one, you were not particularly political, but to the extent that you were, you were certainly left of center. I was pretty political. I mean, that's the other thing I would say is I posted about politics all the time before this and no one cared. But it, it was it was democratic politics. That, that's right. right. Yeah. I mean, I posted probably inappropriate things at Trump or about Trump or other Republicans I didn't like or conservative policies. So no one had ever said you can't post about politics. Right. I, I mean, you're like, well, I, what, I guess it's a free space, right? Because I've been doing that. I just didn't. I didn't. I, I again, I, I'm a moron, I guess, <laughs> because of course it's okay to say those things when you agree with us, but right. it's not okay to talk politically when you are saying something different mm -hmm. than what we believe in. So the Laura Ingram was a year in to my speaking okay. up, but for a year, I got the, you probably want to take it easy. Why are you talking about this? Please don't talk about this. Oh, you can't say this. Well, we can't tell you you can't say this because I can't actually tell you that, but we really think you shouldn't say this. And then it shifted to like, we really like you for this job, but you can't really get it. I mean, this was a year. I mean, that had to just drive you nuts. You're like, you, you mean to tell me my social media concerns about keeping kids outside of classrooms is what's, what's going to keep me out of a CEO chair? Well, and the CEO thing was, I mean, and you have to remember during this period, I got promoted. Yeah, right, right. Well, because you were promoted. doing a great job, right? Yeah, Which is the side was, piece of it. Yeah. So I thought, okay, they don't like it, but how bad can it be? They're promoting me and the business is good and I'm doing my job. And for all the noise and, you know, commotion about it, it's not having any impact on our business. And it's not... It, even people that are hating on me, it's like, it's not getting any traction or pickup. So who cares, right. you know? Um, 
but it continued to build. And, you know, honestly, as I got more followers, of course, then things generated. It's a, a bigger more. threat. It's a bigger threat. Yeah, bigger threat. So, and I was on the local news a lot. Um, but the thing, you know, that enraged me, that just literally like set me on fire was in the fall of 2020, all the private schools opened in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So every single one of my peers telling me to be quiet had a child in in in-person school. Yeah, that'll get you. That will get you. It's not that I was angry with them, but I was like, everyone's got to see the hypocrisy here. Yeah. Everyone, like, again, I'm like, it's so clear. If I just say it the right way, everybody will get it. Um, And I thought they would get it because they're, they were sending their kids to school. So they didn't inherently believe school wasn't safe. Right. Right. This is it. Welcome to politics, Jennifer. (laughs) But that just, like I said, it's like in the gymnastics step, the more they came at me to call me a liar, the more I sort of, I became more aggressive. Yeah. So now you're like built for this moment, right? I mean, the whole run up that we've talked about is you being told to just be quiet, put your head down, don't worry about it. You feel your entire life being sort of ripped out from underneath you until you sort of liberate yourself from that by telling the truth over and over. And now you're in this spot where it's like, well, that's just who I am now. That Yes. I mean, and that's not to say it's not really hard. I mean, it is really hard. I like people to like me. I mean, you know, it's interesting. My husband... He doesn't really care if people don't like it. It's like nothing I've ever seen. It's a like remarkable personality feature. I can't, cause he would just marvel. He would be like, why do you care if they're, they're angry with you? Why do you care if these people on Twitter call you racist and call you all the other terrible things? I care. I mean, I, I can't completely like eliminate that from my way of being but i care a lot less than i used to because it's gotten so ludicrous Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to have any grounding in any sense of reality the names that they can call you you know that are career-ending names i mean they ended mine and And, and, yeah and by the way nobody was coming within the corporate structure to try to protect you from that Oh, God, no. Right? I mean, if anything, it's like, well, well she's getting what she deserves. The employees. <laughs> the employees for calling you guys, me. <laughs> they're chiming in. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I'll tell you a story about that. So the, to, to, to answer your earlier, earlier question about Laura Ingram, at this point, you know, we're in the spring of 2021, and I had built a, a, a sort of grassroots connection to moms and dads across the country who were pushing for open schools, lots in California, New York, because they mm-hmm. were closed the longest, but also those Pacific Northwest states stayed persistently closed as well. And there were a lot of us and we called each other for support. And, you know, it was incredibly helpful to me. And it was mostly women, not exclusively from across the political spectrum. I mean, it was left, it was right, it was religious, it was it was everybody. It was just the concern for kids is what, you know, united us. And we were all pushing to get in the media to tell the story of parents and what was happening to our children. And no one would do it. And not, you know, people had connections. We wrote The Times, we wrote CNN, we wrote nobody. When I say nobody, Nobody that is considered center that I would now not consider center, nobody would have us on. You know, all they would have on are the most fear mongering doctors and teachers unions, you know, leaders saying mass death if we open schools, you know, marching with coffins and this kind of thing. So Laura Ingram called me. I moved my family to Denver in February of 21. I tweeted about it and it got picked up. 
and went a little viral. I think Jake Tapper retweeted it. And then the Laura Ingram show called and said, would you tell this story? And I, I panicked a little bit. You know, I called my mom friends. I was like, what do we do? Like, what do we do? Right. And they said, if you can handle yourself and not get sucked into, you know, whatever message she's trying to further, which you may or may not agree with, but you get your message out there, then do it. Yeah. That's it's a big, a big platform. platform. It's a number one cable news network in the country. Do it. So I did it. And that was like, <laughs> Yes, the, end, the, the, the beginning of the end, you know, and that's when everything really accelerated at work. And that's when I was called publicly and, you know, town hall meetings, racist and anti-gay and anti-trans. Incredible. And an embarrassment for the company. At this point, you got to be like, well, wait a minute. Hold on. These are a lot of people who I formally agreed politically on a whole bunch of stuff. And now I'm a racist and a bigot and a. I mean, it's got to be just opening up a whole new world to you in many well, ways. I, I mean, I, we have these things, which is very popular in corporate America right now. They're called employee resource groups, and they're like... Oh, yeah. Okay, you can criticize them all you want. Anyway, I was the executive sponsor of the Black Employee Resource Group. They'd asked me to lead it. Two of my children are, are mixed race. We had talked about issues of, you know, race and diversity and all of that. We had talked about that, me and many of the folks on my team. And so I was the leader of this group. That didn't matter. My children, that didn't matter. My votes, that didn't matter. Which is so wild. I mean, if you think about all of this coming to fruition because you have some questions about COVID protocol. And now all of a sudden, all of that, it's just, you must be a right-wing racist. QAnon, psychopath. Yeah, you want to kill old people. You want to kill teachers. You want to kill the racist. You know, I had to ask. I had to like clarify. You're like, how? What is, it's because if you are advocating for open schools and the majority of children in San Francisco, which is where I live, public schools are non-white, then you want black children to die. Oh my Lord. That's the rationale. It's so convoluted because in fact, the children harmed are the disadvantaged children, the black, the brown, of the course. Asian yes, of course, yeah. for the same reason, yeah. right? I mean, for the same reason, their school's closed. Of course, they're the ones that are well, disadvantaged. Now, now all the headlines are those are the children that were harmed the most, which is all. Yeah, I mean, I, I, did, I know. But well, it we, went on like this for a very long time. You know, Laura Ingram, I, I might, it was around March 21, and that just kicked up a whole shit storm. And, but it was still another year. I was still there for a full year. After that's that. wild. Yeah. But so, was, so, I mean, I remember, I remember you from your book and I remembered obviously hearing your name as a, as a kid with your success in gymnastics, but I hadn't heard from you in a long time until I read your op-ed when you left Levi's and it was an incredibly powerful read. Thank you. I mean, that was, look, just to summarize for our listeners, I mean, basically you went through your career, your life and career, and how it had led to these amazing opportunities and Levi and said, you know, nice things about the company, but then started to explore sort of your conundrum here with questioning COVID policy and basically decided I'm not going to take any of your, your money in severance or anything else. I'm going to tell my truth about why it is that I'm leaving here. And that to me was just an incredible act of courage 
not just public courage, by the way. I mean, there's there's private and family considerations to do with that too, financial considerations and everything else, but you did it in a very big way. I did do it in a big, <laughs> big way. Um, I think for me, you know, as the two years progressed, you know, my concerns were children. My concerns were about the safety and the development of children, but I became increasingly alarmed about the general illiberalism that I was experiencing and the viewpoint discrimination and the, you know, silencing of speech and the silencing of open debate and dissent. Because, you know, the other point I would just make as it pertains to COVID, there were doctors, very well-regarded, world-famous, world-renowned doctors and statisticians that said all of this early on, and yet they were demonized, vilified, mm-hmm. and just shunted off to the side because we did not allow for any debate and dissent, which is essential to the scientific process, right? How can you search for truth and seek real truth without debate? So that became much more important to me to expose that than whatever sort of trifling you know, misgivings I have about Levi's. Because the fact is, is they're just caught up in this whole thing. Yeah. There's just another cog in this wheel. Um, And we've read and heard so much about it on university campuses. We know about that. And there's so many professors that have have spoken out and quit their jobs or lost their jobs. It hasn't been talked about quite as much in corporate culture, but all those kids that are graduating from university are going right to work in corporate America and they expect to be heard and they demand to be heard. And the executive teams are afraid of them because they know how to use social media. Right. And to my mind, unless they're conservative, in which fact they are not, they're not afraid of them at all. They'd like to just sort of put them back in their box and stick them back in their office. But more and more, as I'm sure you've observed, whether leaders of corporations are actually liberal and progressive or not, they want to appear that. Yeah, totally. Yep. They are polishing and you know burnishing this image as progressives. They don't want to be associated with the oil magnets and, you know, subprime mortgage lenders of the past, they are do-gooders. Yeah, yeah. And and so I don't know what, you know, CEOs are registered to vote as. I don't know if they're Democrats, I don't. But at the end of the day, that is what the the image that, I mean, all of tech is left-leaning. Right, right. Um, You know, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a Republican and work at, Apple, that would be awful. Got to be pretty quiet. Even a Republican is so crazy. But you know, to, to to respond to something you said before, it's so binary now, as I know you know, that if you just veer one little step in any direction from the these are the Democratic talking points, then you are a right wing alt right psychopath. Yeah. And you are a racist and you're hiding your clan hood in the closet. I mean, that's literally. And so once you and, you know, a lot of my friends, former Democrats, now independents, these are my new friends. Um, it's a different thing. It's a different subject that kind of generated awareness for yeah. them, you know, but then you start to question everything. And well, that's what I was going to ask is that you go through this entire experience, you leave Levi, how much of the assumptions that you make about nearly everything comes into question? All. Yeah, I got to imagine well, it does. I mean, you all. can't go through it that personally and, and, and not have it be. Yeah, and there were things I already was questioning, honestly, but this one just like blew my mind. Like I, I just could not understand 
how standing up for disadvantaged children who go to public schools was a right wing <laughs> position. Like it, it should be not a political position. Like if there's anything we can agree on, it should be children and the welfare and healthy development of children. So it just sort of blew my mind. So then, yes, of course, you start to question things that you were already questioning. I mean, I'm Jewish, not very religious, but I, you know, I had already been questioning, I think the growing anti-Semitism that I see coming from the left now, not right. the right. So that was something I'd been like, oh, this is kind of weird, like right. what's happening there. Right. <laughs> um, and there were other other areas, but I, I think the thing for me that's the most alarming is not these each of these individuals' issues, whether it's you know gender ideology or whether it's critical race theory and racial essentialism or whatever you want to call it, whatever the buzzword is. The real issue is that you can't talk about anything. There you go. You can't have the conversations, and I probably still fall further towards the left on a lot of issues than perhaps you and a lot of your listeners, not maybe as far as I used to be, but I also have a lot of friends who are hardcore pro-lifers yeah. and I understand the position. Right. I have a different one. We used to be I able have- to talk about all of this stuff, right? I mean, and it didn't matter if it was in a corporate scene or not. I mean, of course, they've got to do your, your job, but but it didn't, there used, didn't used to have to be a stigma on one set of views or values, right? That you couldn't you talk are- about anything. Well, you weren't evil. You weren't a yeah, Nazi. Right, right. Like, that's the crazy part. Yeah. Is like, if you thought kids should go to school, you were a fascist. Oh, man. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't. Know? No, believe me. We could talk for two more hours. I wish I had two more hours with you, Jennifer. I hope we can do this again sometime because I there's so much more of your story, your courage, your ability to actually put sensical words to just a nonsensical situation um, that we really appreciate. And, and well, I appreciate you having me. And I think once the absurdity of it is revealed, you have no choice but to just reject it. Like, otherwise it continues. Like, you have to. You have to call it out and you have to take the risk. And I'm super lucky because I did very well for a very long time at Levi's so I can kind of take this moment and figure out what's next although i don't know what's next well listen you've done it you've done it your whole life and you've always figured out something that's next that is that is something better than the last but we all have to reject it and we all have to we have to reject the nonsense the name calling the ad hominem attacks the 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 silencing of like we have you and i i don't know what you think about everything but we have to be able to talk about that totally Totally. That is absolutely true. I got three quick questions I got to get for you. I think I know them, but go ahead. This is all right. So this is, and I'm interested from a gymnast point of view on this one. Uh, If you could plan your last meal on earth, what would it be? Anything with French fries. (laughs) Okay. Probably a meaty meat item, like a burger or a steak, but the fries are the main. Fries are essential. Okay. I get it. That's perfect. All right. Second. And I don't know how to approach this one because you've had two very distinct portions of your life and career, corporate. Let's do the corporate thing. If you never got involved in corporate America whatsoever and you had this huge gaping hole, blue sky that you could fill your time with and you could choose anything, literally anything, what would it be? I would make stuff. I would write books and make movies, which is what I'm doing now. I just have to figure out how to make a living at it. (laughs) Well, you're telling important stories. That's the first point, right? 
<laughs> that's what I would do. Corporate, no corporate. Like that's what that would be my first choice. I love it. Okay. All right. So the last question is a little esoteric. And it, our view is that people are motivated primarily by one of two things, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. It's not that anybody enjoys defeat or, or loves, uh, you know, victory any less or more than somebody else. It's what motivates you. And the victory, the, the victory folks are generally sunny optimists, always charging up the hill towards the next thing. The agony of defeat people are, any success they've ever had in life, they, it lasts like 10 seconds, Right. But any defeat they've ever had, they carry it with them, and they use that as motivation to try to get to the next level or, or maintain that it will never happen to them again. On that spectrum, Jennifer, say, where do you find yourself? Oh, I'm an agony of defeat person. You seem, yeah. like, you seem like a very clear agony of defeat person. Well, it's just, it's not that I like it. No, I mean, that's the point of the quote, right? Like it, it, like, lights, a, lights my competitor's ire. Anytime somebody gets excited or more committed by the criticism that they're getting for something that they know is true, they're an agony of defeat person. That's the cheat code on that. Do you know, I'll tell you a very short sort of funny story. So that phrase, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, do you remember it used to Jim be Jim McKay, used yeah. It was NBC. Yeah, ABC. ABC Sports yep. on Saturdays, right? When I fell and broke my femur at the 1985 World Championships, they were going to use me as no. the act defeat, but it was too gross. Like you could see too much. You could see the bone <laughs> played. And so they were going to switch because it used to be a skier. Like on Yeah, ski I remember skiing run. off. Yeah. They were going to add me in there. Oh. That's more than anyone can handle, so we're not going to do that. We but, got uh, this is an extra layer of ruthless today. You got the origin <laughs> of the story, and perhaps the image we're glad we didn't see. You can see it on YouTube. I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Jennifer, say thank you so much for joining us. Keep doing what you're doing. We're all watching and uh, very proud of it. Well, thank you for having me. It's nice to talk to you. Thanks. Take care. Boy, she's a smart lady. Yeah, she really is. I wish, you know, the only the only reservation I have about this interview at all is I wasn't anywhere near done. Like, I felt like I had another hour worth of conversation to have with her because her perspective on this stuff is so is so fascinating. Like, I love to encounter people who have sort of a, a you know, maybe not dogmatic, but definitely a, a faithful, progressive mindset. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden their life is encountered by the reality of what that encompasses. Mm-hmm. And they just shift. And sometimes they become the most powerful voices that we have. And in the case of Jennifer Say, it's hard to argue with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that also speaks to the speed with which the left has moved further left. Yeah, yeah. There's just no question about it. But again, this is is the content that you only get by listening to the Ruthless Variety program. Totally. That's right. In in an alternate universe, in in a universe that was unbiased... Time Magazine would do a huge profile of her be asking the, the question, "Why is this? Why is this successful woman so upset with where society is today?" Yeah, exactly. Right, because this is this is a woman who not only transcended corporate culture of the '90s and rose up the ranks to become, you know, like number two at Levi Strauss. She also somehow overcame a culture within USA Gymnastics to blow the whistle on that too, Mm -hmm. right? When all of her success up to that point was attributed to her time there, but she had to say something. She had to do something about it. And it really, I mean, 
she was sort of custom made for a moment where she is the voice of sanity yeah of of nor as you say like a, a awakening of normal that's right right that's what's happening it, that's what's happening it really is and so anyway i i want to keep following her i'd love to have her back at some point because she, you know you know she's not going to leave, leave it there oh no absolutely right not. i mean this lady's this lady's going to be a force to be reckoned with for people for a long time and i gotta say absolute banger of an episode gentlemen and thank you so much to our listeners remember if you want to get involved with helping elect matthew foldy in maryland there'll be events this weekend and election day next tuesday july 19th so until next time minions keep the faith hold the line and own the libs we'll see you on tuesday stay ruthless